Would you please remain standing as I read these words from Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. We are so glad that you are here today. Thank you for coming to the nine o'clock service of hymnology. We are in a second second week of this series that we're just looking at um, some of the great hymns of the faith. Here's what music helps us with: helps it helps us never forget. Uh, if I if I put twenty six random characters in front of you and said, "Why don't you recite them back to me?" None of us could do that. But if I just start this way, A, B, you can finish 26 random characters, and even a three-year-old can do that. That's the power of music, and that's why we're in this little series. And so this go, uh, on this week, we're going to take a look at an older hymn. Um, If you grew up with hymns, you're familiar with There is a Fountain, but if you're not, this might be new to you. This was a, 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 a hymn written by William Cooper. It looks like Cowper, but it's actually pronounced Cooper. He was born in the 1700s. He was the fourth child in a big family. His father was a clergyman, and all three of his siblings died. Then his mother died while giving birth to a fifth child. And at this time, William was only six years old. He never really recovered from losing his mother. He struggled emotionally his entire life. And so he was sent to a boarding school. Uh, He was bullied at that boarding school. Later, he was taking the bar exam because his father uh, wanted him to be a lawyer. He was pressured into that. And he had runaway anxiety uh, when he came to the bar, bar exam. We would probably call that panic attacks now. And he concluded this, that I am damned by God. And so he threw away his Bible and he attempted suicide. Now, I learned this about suicide this last week, that without fail, people who take the pills after they take the pills, people who cut themselves after they make that cut, they all say the same thing, what in the world am I doing? Without fail. That should teach us something. And William Cooper failed. And he found himself under the care of a committed doctor after that suicide attempt. And he found himself reading his Bible again, specifically Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that we just read. It goes this way. Jesus was set forth by God as a propitiation. Just, just read wrath taker when you come to that word. So Jesus was set forth by God as a wrath taker by his blood through faith. And he captures this moment that he realizes that God loves him in a song. And it goes this way. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Emmanuel just means God with us, right? That's another name for Jesus. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power to all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and it shall be till I die. 
So the truth that we're going to explore today, the truth that changed Cooper's life is this, that it takes Jesus's blood to save us. It, it takes actually a fountain of his blood uh, and an IV into his veins to save us. Now, how does that work and what does that mean? And so let's start today with Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And Hebrews teaches, teaches us this, that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And then it says this, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When God called his people out of Egypt into the desert, he made for them a place that they could worship him. They called it the tabernacle. He uh, put up this tent. And when you went to the tabernacle to worship God, you would have to pass three altars in order to get to the presence of God. There was an altar of burnt offering. There was an altar of incense. There was an, and on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the innermost holy place, there was the mercy seat. And all three of those things had blood on them from sacrifice. And the message was clear, even from the beginning, that you don't just walk in and see God. It takes something. It takes blood. Nobody gets to approach God without the shedding of blood. And we hear that, and our contemporary world hears that, and instantly large swaths of people say, are you kidding? That's Christianity? I don't want anything to do with that. God who requires a blood sacrifice, that's disgusting. That's primitive. That's obscene. What we don't need in this world is more violence, more bloodshed, but that's what God is asking for? So no, 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 I'm not about that. I'm out. But here's also what Hebrews will say to us in many different ways, that there's something about blood. Blood has a power connected to it like nothing else that will connect us with God. And so we can't just dismiss the blood concept. If we do, we miss out on the outrageous expense of our salvation. And so today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about blood. Now, fair warning, I am the last person who should be talking about blood, okay? So if I flush white up here, somebody save me, all right? Okay. Thank you. Here's what we know. If we see blood, something's wrong, right? Blood flowing from your body in ways that a Band-Aid will not touch means something is seriously broken. And when God puts blood into the mix of what it takes to unlock a connection with Him, it tells us something. It tells us about the seriousness of the brokenness of the world that we live in. Our world is really broken, and the fix is not going to be easy. It'll have to be something beyond all the attempts that we make, more than education, more than religion, more than morality, more than therapy, more than social justice or politics or economics. They're, they're not ever going to fully cure our problem. Putting blood in a pair of Nike shoes, not going to do much. It just reminds us of how broken we are. Here's number two. Blood means guilt. When Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis, God comes to him and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And we would say the same thing with phrases like this. Well, there's blood on your hands now, right? Or 
your blood is on your own head. What, what do we mean when we say those things? It means we're guilty. All of the brokenness in the world is somehow our responsibility. There's that famous quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um, when he was asked what was wrong with the world, he said, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. And we can all say that. We are complicit. We are guilty. And that's what blood shows. Here's what it means. Blood also means a stain. Uh, all of these metaphors come together in Isaiah chapter 59. God says, your sins have separated you from me and your hands are stained with blood. Blood is one of those stains that you just can't get rid of. Uh, if you are a launderer out there, you know this. Not the money kind, that's another sermon, but the clothe kind, clothing kind. You know this, right? Isaiah says that just like it's hard to get blood out of clothes, our sins leave that kind of stain in us. And we can do all kinds of things to cover those stains up, but nothing hides it forever. Nothing will make it come out clean like it needs to be. Hebrews chapter 10 says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering the same sacrifices over and over, which what? Can never take away sins. Once the stain is there, once we have blood on our clothes, blood on our hands, it's there for good. And so when we see blood, there's something wrong. But here's also the truth. We know if we don't have blood, something is also wrong. That's the other side of the coin. No blood means, I don't know, maybe you're a zombie. I, that's, that's kind of the, where, where our modern culture has taken that. You're an animated corpse. What we need is blood to live, right? Life is in the blood. That's what Genesis 9, 4 tells us. And that's why we have blood drives. We have people with good blood that come together and they draw that blood out of their veins. We put it in bags and then people with infected blood or diseased blood or people who are low on, maybe they're court low, you know, we give them blood, right? And they get topped off and they get good. You have to have it. Life is in the blood. If you don't have blood, something is wrong. Take that one step further. Not only is there life in the blood, but there's power in blood. If life is in the blood, then when blood flows to another person voluntarily, it has power. And let me uh, explain that by saying this, that everyone here today was born. You were physically born by the shedding of blood. Everyone here today literally is not here unless your mother willingly shed her blood for you to be here today. And so this blood that has life brings about even more life when it is freely given for another person. That's what your mother did for you. If she's in the room, would you turn to her and say, thank you. Thank you, mom, for shedding blood for me. We live free by the shedding of blood, right? Don't we? Men and women, have given their lifeblood and self-sacrifice in the middle of conflict so that we can be here today worshiping, so that you can go out and eat later. We are saved by the shedding of blood. When God's people are enslaved in Egypt, he sends a plague on the Egyptian people. He sends 10 plagues. And the last plague was the plague of death. And the angel of death 
God sent through the land, and the firstborn in every house would die. And God wanted a way to save his people. Now, how many of you are in the room are firstborn? Let's see your hands. Okay. All of you are going to be wiped out. Okay. Sorry. God wanted a way to save his people from the angel of death. And so he said, I want you to get a lamb. I want you to slaughter the lamb, and I want you to take the blood. I want you to paint it on the door post of the house, and when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over your house, and you will not be affected by death. How many of you are firstborn? Let me see your hands again. Oh, you're all saved now. Good job. Because of the blood. And we have the the event called Passover, so blood literally saves people. Ernest Gordon was one of the allied prisoners of war in a Japanese POW camp in Thailand, and he wrote a book called uh, Through the Valley of the Kwai, and it's a very true story. And at one point, he says that this really happened, uh, and this is from the book. It says, the day's work had ended, and the tools were being counted, as usual. The party was about to be dismissed, and the guard shouted that a shovel was missing. The guard insisted that someone had stolen the shovel. And of course, that was very serious because if a shovel was stolen, it could be used for escape. Everybody could have escaped. Striding up and down before the men, the guard ranted and raved, working himself into a fury, screaming in broken English. He demanded that the guilty guilty one step forward to take his punishment, but no one moved. The guard's rage reached new heights of violence. Then all die, then all die, he shrieked. And to show what he meant, to show that he meant what he said, he cocked his rifle, he put it on his shoulder, and he aimed at the first man in the rank, prepared to shoot and work his way down the line. At that moment, a soldier in the back stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention, and said calmly, I did it. I took the shovel. The guard unleashed all of his whipped-up hate, kicking this helpless prisoner and beating him with his fist. Still, he stood rigidly to attention, chin up, though now blood was streaming all down his face. His calm silence seemed to goad the guard into a greater rage. And seizing his rifle by the barrel, the guard lifted it high over his head and brought it down on the skull of the prisoner who sank limply to the ground and never moved again. Though it was perfectly clear that he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when he was exhausted. The men of the work detail picked their comrade's body up, marched back to camp, and when the tools were counted again at the guardhouse, it turns out that no shovel was missing. They were stunned. They were shocked. They had been saved by his blood. Now, just by hearing the retelling of that story, can you feel the power of his blood that was given? Of course. Obviously, he was innocent, right? And obviously, that he, he knew that if he didn't step forward, then everyone could possibly die, and all these other people would have died. And he said, you know, instead of everybody dying, it's just going to be me, me for them. And he didn't just save them physically, because there's more going on here. It's unbelievable after an event like that to think that those men would have ever been the same. They could have never lived their lives 
the same way, knowing what had happened, that somebody gave their lifeblood for them. And actually, when you heard the story, even though the blood wasn't shed for you, didn't you want to be a better person? Didn't you want to live differently? The whole story of the Bible comes to this. There's blood in both a positive and a negative light. Here's the negative light. If we see blood, then something is wrong, right? It means that sin has broken the world and we have a debt to God and only blood pays that debt. We need to pay the debt in blood. Here's the positive side, that if you don't have blood in you, something is wrong. Life is in the blood, power is in the blood. So we have a dilemma. We owe a sin debt to God for a world and the lives that we have broken, and that debt has to be paid in blood. But if we pay it that way, if we give our own blood, our own life, then we don't have life. We owe God blood, but paying what, God, what we owe to God means that we die. And so let's go back to Romans where William Cooper found so much comfort, it says this, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a wrath taker by his blood to be received by faith. Here's a bunch more scriptures. And when I get to the word blood, would you just read it with me? Here's Matthew 26, 28. Jesus is speaking, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. From Acts chapter 20, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Romans 5, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Ephesians chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Revelation chapter 5, there's 24 elders, there's four living creatures, they're all around the throne of God, and they sing a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. They're singing to Jesus, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Here's Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God? The gospel is this. That God doesn't demand our blood as payment for sin. All of those scriptures give us a very different story. Instead, God comes and offers his own blood 
for us. It means on one hand that the debt of sin is paid. It's paid by blood. It means on the other hand that God himself has to die because life is in the blood. And that blood is going to be given away. And the basic message of the gospel of Jesus is this, that Jesus saves us through sacrifice. Jesus saves us through his blood. Now, let's press pause right there, a little time out, and let's entertain this objection that people have. Why blood? Oh man, it's all, it's all so primitive and barbaric. I mean, a blood sacrifice? Come on, we don't live in caves anymore. We don't dance around fires and offer people in sacrifice. Surely God could do a little better. Why couldn't God just forgive? Let's just have God forgive. Surely we could do without the gore. And then let's spin that idea just a tad more. Same idea, just a different side. People say this all the time. Well, I know what the Bible says about sex, Y, and Z. And usually it's about sex. But I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what, what I want with my body. And here's the line that is used almost without fail. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live how I want because God will always love me. Heard it? Well, what are those, both of those views asserting? This, that God can just forgive. God can just forgive. There's no need for judgment. There's no need for payment. I can live like I want, and God can just wipe my sin debt clean, and everyone goes happy. Surely, he can do that. Now, when we start writing our own theology, things get pretty convenient for us. The problem is when you dig into that theology and expose it. Let, 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 let's say this, that somebody borrows your car and subsequently drives it through a wall while they have it driving. What are you going to do? Let's pretend that there's no insurance and they bring the car back and the bumper is where the door should be. <laughs> what do you do? You have some options. Number one, you could demand that they pay for the damage. That's an option. Number two, you could also refuse to let them pay anything. What does that mean? It means that you now have to pay, right, to get the bumper back in the right place. Or number three, you could come to some arrangement where you both chip in and cover the damages. Now, here's the point. No matter which option you choose, the damage never just vanishes into thin air. In every option, the damage doesn't magically get undone. It's still there, and a cost still has to be paid by someone. And so let's pretend just for a second that we write better theology than God. And let's let God be a God who is indifferent to sin. For a moment, let's entertain the possibility that for our offenses, God just magically makes them disappear. They just vanish, and there's no cost to anyone. And in that case, we would say things like this. Oh, we can live together. It's no problem. We don't need rings. It's, it's a consensual decision. No one's getting hurt. There, there aren't any victims here because God will always love us, right? No cost until 
that person that you haven't committed to that is sitting across the table from you decides to go and live with somebody else that they don't commit to, what are you going to say? You have no ground to stand on when that happens. After all, it was okay when you did it. Why isn't it okay when they do it with somebody else? No one's getting hurt, right? There's no cost. Wrong. You pay the cost. The real victim is you, and there always is a victim. Or let's take this. A warlord storms into a village and his army of thugs uh, do whatever they want with the people in the village, and then they take all the boys that are old enough to hold a gun. Well, too bad for those villagers, right? After all, God doesn't judge. Those offenses just vanish into thin air, and he loves the warlord just as he is. And now he's got a bigger army, that warlord does, and a bunch of violated women are without sons. Victims? Ah, oh well, there's no cost. Or let's ratchet it up even more. There are soldiers that are on the roof of the building. And there's a pipe that goes down through the roof and it opens up into a wire column in a room below. And then that wire column has a second bigger wire column around it so that a hand cannot reach into the inner wire column. And people are funneled into that room below the roof. And they're told that they're there for a quick shower. And then on to more processing, right? And so clothes come off and shoes are left at the entrance, including a child's shoe that has a sock carefully tucked inside because they're going to put them on again in just a few minutes. But you know that there's no shower, right? Instead, uh, a very common insecticide is thrown down that pipe by the soldiers on the roof, and it falls into that wire column that people can't get to. And when they realize what is really happening, they can do nothing. They can't get to the poison in the column. They can't get out of the room. And as a result, that sock is still in that shoe to this very day, 80 years later. But it doesn't matter how we live, right? God will always love me. Those victims, too bad for them. Do you see the problem? Sin always has victims. You may not be able to see the victim, but the victim is still there. Maybe the victim is you. You just can't see it. And when we see victims, what do we want? We want justice. That's what we want. No one on the planet just forgives when evil is this serious. Here's a quote from a Nazi official about this shoe and about the children. The children, they're not the enemy at the moment. The enemy is the blood inside them. The enemy is the growing up to be a Jew that could become dangerous. And because of that, the children were included as well. You just can't let that go, right? And so when we say, can't God just forgive? What we're really asking God to do is something that none of us would ever even entertain to do because there are people who were hurt in the process and that deserves 
justice. And here's the point. If God gives up his role as judge, if that's the way he chooses to make us all righteous in his eyes by sweeping sin under a rug like so many people want him to do, then what about the victims? What about that child? Would it be loving if God said to that child, well, I I didn't really see all those atrocities that were done to you, sorry. Is that loving? Not at all, not even a little. God has to be a God of judgment. He should, he must, and he will judge us for our actions in this life because the only way to love victims of sin is to judge the perpetrators of sin. So here's the wonder of the gospel. How does God do this? How does he carry out his judgment on people who deserve it without destroying them? And here's the answer, that he pays the penalty of sin himself with his own blood. John Murray writes this, God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. There it is again, by his blood. It takes the blood of Jesus to forgive us. Why? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German minister that stood up to the Nazi regime at the cost of his own life, and he has a lot of very famous writings, and in one of them, he writes this, all forgiveness is a form of suffering. And specifically, he says this, that everyone who forgives someone bears the other's sins. Now, what does that mean? It means this, if you've really forgiven somebody because they've really offended you, if you've really forgiven, you're going to suffer for it. If you think that through, that's true. If you have some real offense against you, You only have two options. Number one is revenge. I go after them because of what they did to me, and I make them suffer more. Here's the problem. They then retaliate as well, and then they make you suffer, and then you make them suffer, and you go back and forth, and who wins? Evil wins, and everyone suffers. Here's the second option, forgiveness. Forgiveness is not making everything like it once was. Maybe it can never be that. But forgiveness is to stop holding somebody, somebody's offense against them. Forgiveness is no longer making them suffer. And guess what? When I do that, when somebody has really offended me and I say, I'm not going to make them suffer, guess who suffers? Me. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is hard. The pain of the offense that we want to take an outward shape has to be reined in. We keep it in check. We refrain from lashing out. And that itself is painful to us. It's agony. We absorb the debt ourselves. We take the cost on ourselves instead of taking it out on somebody else. And that hurts. A lot of people would say it feels like a death. But it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of lifelong bitterness and cynicism. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. Now, God has those same options. Number one, he could judge us and we get his wrath. The the problem is in judging us, in destroying sin, he also destroys us. Or number two, he forgives us. And to do that means that he suffers 
instead of us. He gets his own wrath. He pays for our sin himself. We could say it this way. The judge takes the judgment. And the cross is God's suffering because he chose to forgive us. Forgive us forgiveness is always suffering. If this is not new for God, if you go all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and their sin literally has exposed them and they need a covering. And the covering is provided by God. It costs something. He has to kill an animal, shed blood so that their sin can be covered. That's how God always operates. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness, no covering for sin. And in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices, blood spilled to cover sin. And we get to the New Testament, and Jesus himself lives a perfect life. He goes to the cross, and he spills his blood to cover our sin. There has to be blood to pay the penalty of sin. A life has to be sacrificed for there to be blood that covers sin. And so it's necessary that we have a fountain of blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It's Jesus' blood given willingly, sacrificially, in love for us, to forgive us, to save us, to give us life and power when we deserve death. And that teaches us at least a couple things. Number one, nothing less than the blood of Jesus will save us. Nothing less than that. The blood of Jesus is everything or it is nothing at all. If a friend jumped in front of a bus at the cost of his life for you for no reason because you're not in front of the bus, that's dumb. But if a friend jumped in front of a bus at the cost of his own life because you were in the path of the bus, now that's beautiful. And it means that it took his life and nothing less to save you. And the cross is no different if something else in this life other than the cross has any saving power at all, then the cross is the most exceptional act of stupidity that we can imagine. It's like Jesus jumping in front of a bus when there's no one there in front of the bus that needs saving. But if the cross is the only thing that can save us, now it becomes a more beautiful act of sacrifice than we can ever imagine. It's everything. Our brokenness is forgiven and fixed and our guilt and shame are carried away and we lose all our guilty stains and we're made white as snow by the blood. Nothing else will do. Here's the second thing. Nothing less than a changed life will honor that kind of sacrifice. If you haven't seen Saving Private Ryan, I'm going to ruin it for you, but I think you've had a couple decades to see it, so that's on you, okay? Saving Private Ryan is a story about World War II where a team of um, soldiers is tasked with going to find a soldier named Ryan, Saving Private Ryan. And the reason that they are to go and save him is because all of his other brothers have died. And the United States Army wants Ryan to be at home with his family since they have lost everyone else. And so this team is assigned the task of going to find him on the front in Europe. And as you can imagine, it is 
It is atrocity-filled, if you've ever seen the movie. Be warned, it's war. And they go through hell to find Private Ryan. They finally find him. Many of them die. And Tom Hanks plays the main character. And at the very last scene, Tom Hanks himself is dying on a bridge in some town in Europe that had just gotten bombed. And, and Ryan, saving Private Ryan, Private Ryan is right there by his side watching him die. And Tom Hanks says this to, save, to Private Ryan, the one that he has saved. They went to save him. They didn't go to win the war. They went to save one guy so that he could go home. And he's there dying on the bridge. He looks into Ryan's eyes and he says, earn this. Earn this. I have to tell you, I don't, I don't sing the anthem the same. I can't, I can't listen to the national anthem and not have that picture in my head. And I'm not even Private Ryan, right? Can you imagine how he lived in response to that kind of self-sacrifice? Blood given freely can never leave us the same. And when we see the blood at the cross, we cannot be the same. Jesus wouldn't say, earn this, because there's nothing to earn. He's paid it all, right? But here's what he would say, honor this. Would you just honor this? Would you live in such a way that I didn't die in vain? Would you just live differently? Don't waste your life. To waste your life is to waste the blood that I have spilled for you. The blood has power, and that's what it has power to do, to change us. And so let's go and live lives that are worthy of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We are not earning salvation. Jesus' blood has already paid it but we are honoring the salvation that was won for us. Let's go back to Romans 3 one more time. Paul says we are justified freely by his grace. It's a gift. And it comes by way of the Redeemer, Christ Jesus, who is the wrath taker for sin because he willingly gave his blood. And this gift, this freedom, this payment for our sin debt, here's the way Paul ends. That gift is to re be received through faith. There is a life-giving, redeeming power in the fountain of blood that Jesus gives you. And the question today is, have you accepted that gift? Is Jesus' blood coursing through your veins? Here's the way the song's going to go. We're going to sing it in a minute. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Look at the cross. Look at the blood on the ground for you. It's there for you. And respond. Come with faith. Come with repentance. Come being willing to be plunged beneath the water of baptism so that his blood can do a work in you. It's forgiving and it's covering and it's life-giving work. And let, let it turn your sin-stained heart white as snow.